0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit (laughs) newcityfellowship.net. Oh, Good morning. Good morning. Uh, like she said, my name is Cody Davis. Um, I'm thankful to be here this morning. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians four, um, starting in verse seven. So, while you guys are flipping there, I just do want to take a second. I, I really am thankful. I don't honestly get the opportunity to preach often, uh, but I love to preach. Um, it is nerve wracking in and of itself, uh, you know, because you're speaking on behalf of God in one sense. Um, but there's also just something so special about it, and uh, I, just, I just enjoy doing it, and so I'm just thankful for the opportunity to do so. So again, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning, starting in verse 7. Uh, I'm going to ask, once you guys get there, if you could stand as we read God's word together. All right, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that you've built it into the rhythms of the Christian life to meet up weekly. Lord, it is so easy we are so quick just to forget your goodness to us, Lord. We're so quick to focus on the things uh, that, that draw our attention from this world. Uh, Lord, we can get discouraged so easily. And Lord, so I'm just thankful for just this simple act that you've uh, created where we can just gather together every Sunday morning to be able to greet one another, Lord, as you have greeted us. Lord, to be able to worship you in song, in in prayer. And through your word, Lord. We're thankful for your word, Lord. We're thankful that it's preserved for us. Lord, though, honestly, we have so many different translations of it in our language, Lord. We can uh, understand it. Lord, we're thankful for your spirit. Same spirit that wrote these words is the same spirit indwelling within us to give us an understanding for it, Lord. And that's just, it's honestly just crazy to think about. And so we're just thankful for that, Lord. I pray um, that uh, spirit that you would uh, work within me, Lord, that you would work within those who are here. Lord, uh, your word uh, is sufficient, Lord. Convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord. And at the end of the day, may you use the word to make us look more and more like your son, Jesus. Lord, we're just thankful, again, just to be able to gather this morning, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Have you guys ever wondered how they get the lines so straight on a golf course. I mean, if you've seen any golf course, even just a picture of it, you can see these beautiful just straight lines that are running down the fairway. Uh, It's gorgeous, whether you're a sports nerd like myself or not. I've always wondered how they get them so straight. I mean, no matter the course, if it's super hilly, uh, you know, if it's weaving in and out of the woods, they get those lines extremely straight. Um, Well, one day, I was sitting down and hanging out with a friend. Turns out, he worked at a golf course when he was younger. And so I asked him, I said, how did you guys get the line so straight? And he said, the key to it's actually pretty simple. All you have to do is you find the path that you want to cut the line straight on, you look ahead and you find a target that's that's in that path. So think like a tree, you know, anything like that. And you just mow straight towards that target and you never take your eyes off of it. Whether you're on a hill, whether you hit a bump, whether you hit a golf ball, you keep your eyes on that target and you don't take it off. And that's how you get the line straight. It turns out this concept's actually the same across a lot of different things. Uh, my grandpa wa- worked for uh, UPS, proud of it, uh, tries to recruit everyone that he knows to work at UPS. Um, but when, he was, when I was first learning to drive, he would take me out to teach me. and would always tell me, aim high in the steering. Or in other words, keep your eyes about 10 to 15 cars in front of you um, so that you can just see what's going on in the road, and it actually keeps you in your lane better than if you look straight in front of you. I also used to run cross-country and track in high school, and it was the same concept. My coach used to get so mad at me because I would keep my head down looking at the ground in front of me because I didn't want to trip. Um, But you actually could tell the difference in the races that I ran, uh, time-wise, between the races where I looked straight ahead and was always looking at what what was in the distance and the races where I looked down. The races where I was looking up ahead were much, much faster. And this concept of keeping your eyes on what is way ahead of you is a driving force behind the main point of today's text, which is this. We can fully give ourselves to gospel ministry when we realize that the eternal outweighs the temporary. say that for you one more time. The main idea of today's text, we can fully give ourselves to gospel ministry when we realize that the eternal outweighs the temporary. So to get there in this text, Paul walks through a what, a why, and a how. So we'll just take some time to walk through each of those. So we'll start with the what. The what is simply... That gospel ministry involves suffering. He puts it simply in verses 7 through 12. Take a look at some key words or phrases that are in there. In verse 7, he refers to his body as a jar of clay. In verses 8 through 9, he calls himself afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. In verse 10, he says that he is always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In verse 11, he says that he is always being given over to death. In verse 12, he says that death is at work in him. Now, these aren't overly spiritualized words. While there is certainly a spiritual concept that Paul is driving at here, he's also simply explaining that he's been through a lot. Uh, I think it's helpful to do a quick review on just some of what Paul has been through up in this point. So you don't have to flip with me, but I just want to review uh, just just through a couple chapters in 2 Corinthians and some things that he says. So in uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 8, He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Again, that says sentence of death. In chapter 6, after our passage, uh, he's talking and he says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. In chapter 11, he talks what he's been through and says that he's been through far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst. He was often without food and cold and in exposure. Those aren't my words, those are words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. So when we say that Paul is carrying in the body the death of Jesus, he means it. To say that he's been through a lot is honestly an understatement. These stories miss the emotional, mental, and spiritual exhaustion that he have experienced as well. And now, I recognize that most of us, if not all of us, haven't been through anything remotely close to what Paul has been through. And honestly, probably never will. But I don't want to discount the exhaustion that you will give by thoroughly giving yourself to the gospel. And I don't just mean spiritually. I mean mentally, physically, emotionally, socially. It can be tiring to have someone over for dinner on a weeknight. I mean, work itself can be exhausting. Then you have to come home, clean up the house, make sure that the kids are good to go, catch up briefly with your spouse, and then give a couple of hours to conversing with someone else or another couple maybe helping build them up in the gospel. It'd be much easier to just come home and catch up on Netflix. It can be tiring to wake up early on a Saturday morning so that you can help serve and volunteer at an outreach that your church is doing. It would be so much easier to just sit in your phone for an hour or sit sorry, sit in your bed for an hour on your phone, have a lazy Saturday, not really care about anything that's going on. It can be tiring to get a late-night phone call from someone that you're discipling, and their life is in a mess, and they just need you to help them right now. It'd be much easier to just keep your phone off, ignore the call, and get a good night's sleep. It can also be tiring to give your lunch break to sitting down with a coworker, so that you can share the gospel with them and endure through the list of questions that they have. It'd be way easier to just go sit in your car in silence for 30 minutes so that you can just eat in peace. And let's be honest— that's if everything goes well. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that things can get messy quickly. That person that you've been discipling can backstab you. That couple that you gave countless of hours of, of your life to can cut you out of their lives and not give you a reason why. The person leading your ministry could have a moral failure. Bickering could come up easily and make continuing on in gospel ministry so difficult. Honestly, at this point, we may be quick to say, Cody, I get it. I get it. That is exhausting. But we can't really relate to Paul. I mean, he was practically superhuman. Those things did not affect him in the way that our life situations affect us. I mean, gospel ministry just didn't affect him emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically in the way that it would us. But Paul wasn't all that different from us. And there's at least a few quick reasons I can think of to prove this, just three really quick. So, first, the fact that Paul is even writing this letter is proof to what he's been through and the fact that it's affected him. So we know from Acts 18 that Paul started the church in Corinth. But then in 1 Corinthians, we learn that the church quickly became divided. Uh, they found some other gospel teachers that, sound, that honestly probably preached a lot better than Paul did um, and didn't go through nearly as many hardships as, Paul, as Paul's done. And so the Corinthian church decided, no, we don't, Paul, we don't like you anymore. We like this guy. We're done with you. And they backstabbed him. And so we gather from 1 Corinthians that he went and rebuked the church, Um, but it seems that they've repented at this point. So as Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, they've repented. But then it seems by the time that we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul's received word that they're actually back to their old ways and that they've they've backstabbed him again and they're rejecting the gospel. If anyone knows anything about the messiness of giving your life to the gospel, it's Paul just with the Corinthian church. Secondly, look at what he calls himself in verse 7 calls himself a jar of clay. There's nothing particularly special about a jar of clay in our time, much less in their time. We're not missing anything by just reading the jar of clay, right? A jar of clay would be all over the house, used for the most basic things that a jar would be used for, right? Carrying water, food, storing items, anything like that. There's nothing special about the jar. It was actually pretty fragile. Uh, They were broken and were honestly pretty cheap to replace. And this is what Paul refers to himself as. Fragile, and ordinary. Does that describe anybody else in here? I mean, I know it describes me. And then third, he calls himself perplexed. And I know that Superman never called himself perplexed. So there's no way that he was a superhuman. So at this point, you may be saying, Cody, why do it? I mean, Paul went through a lot. And you just walked us through all the reasons that giving yourself to orient or orienting your life around the gospel can be extremely tiring and messy and just exhausting. So why do it? Well, why did Paul give himself to gospel ministry? Well, Paul had a pretty clear why. Take a look at verses 13 through 15 for me. It says, "Since we have since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus." And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, Paul gave his life to gospel ministry out of a belief that grace changes lives for the glory of God. So, to repeat that for ourselves, we give ourselves to gospel ministry out of a belief that grace changes lives for the glory of God. So let's break that down. First, notice the simple uh, conviction that Paul has. He has believed, therefore he speaks. Then the right question here is, he believed what? Well, he believes the gospel. It's been the only thing that he's built his ministry on. In the passage right before ours, he explains what he's about. In verse 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. He goes on to say in the next verse, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. The gospel is the clear message that Jesus, the Messiah who has been promised since the beginning of time and whom God's people have been waiting for forever, is here. He is God in the flesh. Paul saying image of God doesn't just mean that he's another like God or something like that. Actually, it means that he is he is clarifying exactly what God is. He is God in the flesh. What was once veiled before is now unveiled in Jesus, and we get the full picture of all that God is. Jesus, God in the flesh, humbled himself to become a human, to be raised in a small little fishing town called Nazareth. He lived a perfect life and was clear about who he was. He declared that he is Lord And called on all who would listen to turn away from the sinful lives that they had created and were living in and submit to him as Lord. As Paul stated in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul believed that Jesus died for our sins, took on the full wrath of God that we deserved, was buried, and then came back to life three days later. This is Paul's belief. It's at the center of each and every one of his 13 letters that we have in the Bible. And because Paul believes this, he feels compelled to speak. You see, this is not some abstract concept for Paul, right? For Paul, the gospel message has a direct impact on our lives. In verse 14, he points out a current and a future hope that he wants others to experience. He firmly believes that those who submit to Jesus as Lord will one day be raised to dwell with Jesus in his full glory, not needing to hide any parts of themselves, but able to be with him in full so that's the future, but he also sees that it has an immediate impact on others' lives. Right? Look at verse 15. He says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul didn't see grace as an abstract concept either. As Margaret Thrall notes, grace in this verse does not simply refer to God's forgiveness of sin but to the gracious divine power at work in the hearts and lives of the readers. So let me rephrase that, make it a little bit more simple. Most people define grace as undeserved favor or getting what you don't deserve, which is correct. That is a a great understanding of grace. Um, However, it's just an aspect of grace as well, right? There's another aspect of grace that's not just a character of God, but is an active component consistently changing the believer. That's what Paul has in mind here. He'll later go on to say in chapter 9 that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God continues to supply grace that doesn't just cover up past mistakes, but positively changes us to make us look more and more like Jesus in our lives now. Paul knew that the gospel that he believed could actively change the lives of others now, in this lifetime, leading to them giving thanks to God for the current change. And at the end of it all, it's to the glory of God. Paul doesn't see the glory of God and the work of grace changing people's lives as two separate things. Rather, he sees the work of grace as bringing glory to God because he's the only one who could do this work, just like Paul stated at the beginning in chapter, or in verse 7. Just like a kid getting super excited over the gift that they receive on Christmas morning is to the joy of a parent. A person celebrating grace changing their life is to the glory of God. It shows off his power. You want to talk about a why? People do far more for way less. We're talking about lives changing now with a future promise that they will be able to experience the fullness of all that God is in the future. So you may be thinking at this point, Cody, this sounds great. I get why I should do it, And I understand that it will involve sacrifice and suffering. But I don't know if that's sustainable. And you would have a point. If Paul just left it there, uh, it would not be sustainable at all. Sure, you could probably do it for a week, a month, a year, a few years, maybe even a decade. But eventually, you would burn out. And that's where our how comes in. And surprisingly, it's actually an underlying reason why we give our lives to gospel ministry. Take a look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Gospel ministry is sustained by an eternal perspective. say that one more time. Gospel ministry is sustained by an eternal perspective. There's both an immediate and a future promise here that keeps Paul going and sustains him. There's the immediate promise that the exhaustion and suffering that he's enduring right now is actually changing him day by day. And the future promise that it's preparing for him something far greater than anything that he could have now. So we need to get inside of that for that to really stick out to us. So Paul, throughout all of his writings, has the understanding that what is spiritual is far more real and weighty than anything that we could experience physically in this life. For example, in Ephesians 6, when he's discussing the armor of God, he says, "...for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul has an understanding that while we certainly live in reality now, there's something going on that's even more real and more relevant than what we can see with our eyes. So let's think about this for a moment using cotton candy and steak, two of God's greatest gifts to us. So put a steak and cotton candy in front of a child and ask them to pick one or the other. Nine times out of ten, what are they going to pick? Cotton candy, exactly. It's bright, it looks fuller, It's fluffy. I mean, honestly, just looks better, right? Now, put a steak and cotton candy in front of a hungry adult. Nine times out of ten, what are they going to choose? Steak. Steak. So, while it may not look as physically appealing, honestly, it's brown. It's got juices running out of it, right? It actually has more flavor than the cotton candy and is more fulfilling. It's the same thing that Paul is talking about here. When we're spiritual children, we're much more prone to go after the cotton candy or just to think about the cotton candy, Right? the home that's in a really good neighborhood, security in what your reputation is at work, or the image that your family is perfect. After all, it looks more appealing. But once you start to eat cotton candy, you realize it actually has almost no density at all. I mean, it just wastes away in your mouth. But as you mature in your faith, the steak is more attractive. Though it may not look as physically appealing as a cotton candy, it contains more flavor and fulfills you. This is those long years of walking side by side with a young believer as they keep making the same mistakes over and over, but then then they begin to finally mature in their faith. Those moments of sacrificing a quiet evening with yourself to hang out with your family and have uh, gospel conversations with your kids or continuing to share the gospel with your neighbor who honestly could not care less about your beliefs. And that's what Paul is getting at. Each time that we sit down to eat dinner with another church member, even though we're exhausted from the day, each time we get up early on a Saturday morning, even though the week was long, each time that we give up quiet lunch for a gospel conversation with a co-worker, even though we just got uh, done dealing with a very frustrated boss, Paul says that each of those moments is actually creating within us something more real and something more worthwhile and more valuable and weighty even if it looks like we're losing on the outside. You see that? Those little moments are renewing us day by day and are also preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Other translations say that it's actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory, not just preparing us for it, but actually producing it within us. Those individual moments where we feel like we're in those moments of affliction are creating something more weighty and more real and more worthwhile in us now that will be fully realized when we stand with our God one day on the other side of this life. And in that moment, we'll be able to look back on those moments of, of affliction as light and momentary. They'll look like cotton candy. You see how it's twofold. Both the immediate and the future drive Paul to continue on in ministry, right? Just think about it also in a way uh, that many bodybuilders talk about bodybuilding. Uh, I can't relate, honestly, but uh, it's, yeah, I've just heard them talk about it. So it says, many of them say that they started out with the end goal in mind. They wanted to have the huge biceps, the huge back, the huge traps, chest, legs, all of it, right? But what actually kept them going wasn't just the end goal. It was the process. They fell in love with those long hours in the gym, sweating, tearing up their muscles, knowing that in those moments, it was creating something for them in the future. They had both the immediate love for it and the future desire for it. And this is why Paul can say that he is afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. It's the key to how we can continue on giving ourselves to living out the gospel, even though it feels like we're getting punched in the face repeatedly. We can continue on in the difficulty knowing that those moments are actually changing us, making us look more and more like Christ now, and what, that what waits for us from the other side is so much more real, it's so much more weighty, it's so much more valuable than what we see now. What we see now is transient and temporary. What we will have then will be more real than we realize. And that's how we can get through the what With our why, we can know that it's changing others, but that also it's producing something within us that is so much more better than anything that we could have now. So just like the guy mowing the golf course, and the driver keeping his eyes ten cars ahead of him, and the cross-country runner looking ahead at him, or looking ahead on the horizon, we can press through the hardships that come with gospel ministry when we get our eyes up. When we keep our mind focused on the eternal and understand that we are working towards that and what is happening now will serve to make that end even better, we can continue to give ourselves, our lives, to living out the gospel. If you're in the room and you haven't believed the gospel before, maybe you've never heard it, maybe it's never quite made sense, or you just haven't found it all that important, I'd encourage you to talk to the person next to you, or you can talk to me after the service. Don't make the mistake of only caring about what you see in this world, it's temporary, and it's transient. The eternal is unfading and will never cease. Consider the way that this could change your life now and in the future. If you are a believer, take some time to reflect on this today. First, what have you been focusing on? Have you you given your time to things that seem more important in this world, in this life? Or have you found yourself giving your time to things that may not seem important now, but have eternal value? Also, I want you to go back and look on any sort of momentary afflictions that you are in right now. Everybody has them, and I want you to think about them, rethink about them in in light of eternity, in light of what is being created within you now that will lead to a future hope that is even greater than what we could think of. I will encourage you to take this afternoon and think about how you can continue to orient your life around the gospel, knowing that it's creating something more real and more weighty within you now, and it's preparing for you to rejoice all the more one day when we meet Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, we're thankful for um, just your goodness to us, Lord. <clears throat> for the fact that even though it feels like we are consistently losing, Lord, uh, there's moments when it feels like, honestly, like we are just getting punched over and over and over by those that don't know us that well and by those that are closest to us. Lord, we're thankful that you're using those moments to continue to create something in us that matters, Lord. Creating something in us that is even more real than what we could uh, give our lives to if we just focused on what this world has to offer. So Lord, I pray that you would give us an eternal mindset, Lord, that we'd continually be thinking about what you are creating within us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would just reflect on the goodness of the gospel, Lord. The fact that it has saved us and is continuing to save us, Lord, is continuing to change us, to make us look more and more like you. Lord, we love you, we're thankful for you. We pray these things in your son's name, amen.